Hey, everybody. It's Friday. That means we are back with Revelation questions from week two of the Revelation series. If you were following along on Wednesday, this lesson covers the first half of the seven churches or the first chapter of the seven churches. And uh, there's a lot in there. So we've got a few questions that people have asked this week. Again, if you're tuning in on Wednesdays, you're going to hear the meat, the substance of the lesson, and you're going to hear a couple of questions. But if you tune in on Fridays, that's where we're going to go deeper on a couple of these more specific questions. Or even if you have a question that maybe just didn't get covered in the lesson at all, uh, this is a good place to ask it. So we've gotten questions texted in. We've gotten questions emailed in. You can do either one. If you're watching live, you can text in. Or if you want to email us at info at SoWeSpeak.com, we will collect questions there. You know, all of our questions this week talk about the different symbols and descriptions in these letters. So you have Jesus, the words of Jesus in these letters to the churches. And people are asking, what are certain features of the letters? And you did a great job introducing these letters and, you know, talking about they are practical then and they're practical now. And some of the reason that's true is because they have these emblems, these little symbols in them at the beginning and the end, and, and sometimes in the middle of the verses. So I wanted to kick off with a question that maybe we just step back for a minute and say, when you read these letters, should you be looking for every single thing to symbolize something else? Should you maybe say, okay, I'm going to assume that these are exactly what they say they are, until proven otherwise, what's your approach when you're looking at these letters? That's a great question. Not everyone approaches it this way, but for me, because Revelation, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, I assume that most of the things that are not easily understood should be taken as symbols of some kind, unless they demand to be taken very literally for what they are. Let me give you an example. In chapter one, Jesus is walking among seven lampstands and he has seven stars in his hands. And this is an easy one because Jesus explains it. He tells us what it is. And so when you see the lampstands and the stars, you don't necessarily assume that Jesus is walking amongst lampstands. He says to you, the lampstands are the seven churches and the stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so those are symbols to to uh, relate a reality. Jesus is indeed present among the churches, and he is indeed communicating with these messengers of the churches. So that's a good example of a, a symbol being used to reflect a reality. But there are other things, for example, in chapter two, as you open the letter to the church in Thyatira, it says this, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Well, it seems to me that those words are intended to evoke imagery and to, to if you call it symbolize, symbolize the majesty, the penetrating gaze and the awesomeness of Christ. I don't know that the burning eyes has a specific correlation in reality, but it is a symbol that evokes in my mind, oh, wow, overpowering insight on God's part. So in one way or another, I think most of these things are indeed intended to evoke something outside their, what they specifically talk about. Well, let's get to the first one of these that will continue to explain the way you uh, go about understanding the meaning of these symbols in chapter two, verse seven, which is the letter to Ephesus. 
It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What is the paradise of God here in this letter? That is a, a question about which there are differences of opinion, but I do have one. That word paradise is an interesting word. It is a Greek word, but it's actually on loan from uh, Persian times. And so think, oh, 500 years before the uh, New Testament is written, the Persians ruled the world. And the word paradise in Persian would refer to a beautiful garden. And oftentimes you would have the paradise of the king. And what does that mean? It was like a big, maybe you think of it as a big forest that only the king could go in. That was a beautifully manicured garden that the king could go in. So the paradise of Xerxes or the paradise of the king would be this beautiful garden. Now, this word appears three times in the New Testament and probably the most famous other time it appears is when Jesus is on the cross and he turns to one of the thieves and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So the prevailing opinion seems to be that the idea of paradise is where God is. And so the paradise of God would be using an earthly image of this beautiful garden where the king was as a symbol of where God lives. There's another interesting twist on this too, though. Remember back in Genesis uh, chapter 2, and this is several times in Genesis chapter 2, it talked about when God created man, he placed him in the Garden of Eden. Now, that's originally written in Hebrew, but, oh, a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, since Jews could no longer read Hebrew, they translated it into Greek because everybody could read Greek. Well, when they translated that Hebrew word for garden, they translated it into Greek and they used the word paradise. So it would be God placed man in the paradise of Eden. And so there seems to be a strong idea here. You just pull all these uh, little clues together and you get the idea that this is like a garden of Eden, like God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. This is a dwelling place of God. So I take paradise. It seems to me, barring stronger evidence to the contrary, that the paradise of God would be the very presence of God, the beautiful place of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. It's interesting at the end of these letters, what's promised to the people uh -huh. who conquer and the way that those all <clears throat> weave together in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a pretty stunning promise to be able to go back to the paradise of God. Of course, not exactly, as you said, not back to the Garden of Eden, but to an Eden-like new heavens and new earth. Uh, we get, We have another question on something very similar, which is actually in the next letter, the letter to Smyrna, somebody asked in chapter 2, verse 10, what is the crown of life? This verse says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's uh, another really interesting word, by the way, that crown of life. There are two words that are going to be used in the book of Revelation, two different Greek words for crown. And one of them is our word diadem. And that is the crown like a king or a queen would wear. And so a diadem represents a crown of authority, 
a kingly or queenly crown. This is not that word. This is the word Stephanos. It's where we get our name Stephen. The name Stephen means a crown. Well, this is a different kind of crown. And the crown, this word Stephanos, is usually a crown like a garland of uh, leaves or flowers or something. And this is the garland or the, quote, crown that was given to a winner of an Olympic game or a winner of a contest. And so diadem is associated with authority. But here, this crown of life is associated with the idea of the Stephanos, in other words, the victor's crown or the winner's crown. And so the idea that of Christians persevering and overcoming you have, as Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the rate, the race, and now there awaits for me a crown of glory. And so as we are faithful in our lives, we will receive this victor's crown, which is eternal life with God. That's a great question. A more general question from the next letter in uh, the church in Pergamum. And several of these letters uh, are about sexual immorality. This one is the first one to bring it up specifically. In uh, chapter four or chapter two, verse fourteen, it says, "I have a few things against you. You hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality." What do you think this verse is referring to specifically? Well, that phrase sexual immorality, it's a it's one word in Greek, is capable of two understandings that are very much related. You will often see, first of all, it's plain sense, sexual immorality. When Jesus uses that word, when the New Testament uses that word, uh, sometimes we're tempted to hear sexual immorality by the morality of our current era. Whether you lived in France in 1500 or you lived in England in 1950 or you live in America in 2023, well, the morals around sex have changed over time. But in the New Testament, they haven't changed. And God's idea of sexual morality hasn't changed. And so on its plain sense, when Jesus uses the word sexual immorality, he's talking about the morality around our sexual relations that God laid out from the very beginning in the law of Moses. And I'll simply summarize it. I'm not doing this justice by saying that God envisioned sex as part of the intimacy between a man and a woman in marriage. And so sexual immorality in the Bible and to Jesus would be basically anything outside of that context. There are times, however, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that you will see that phrase sexual immorality used to symbolize a spiritual immorality, meaning not an unfaithfulness to your husband or wife to move outside the bounds of morality, but a spiritual unfaithfulness to God. And so the idea of sexual immorality can sometimes be understood as referring to your unfaithfulness to God. Now, the specific question is in this context, talking about uh, Balaam, and then later talking about the Nicolaitans, the historical reference around Balaam, and then the speculation around the Nicolaitans leads me to say this is talking about 
sexual immorality. Now, along with that, is there unfaithfulness to God? Yes. And frequently you'll see these two things together. But I think here it's just talking about the uh, immoral sexual practices that some of the teachers, some of the Christians were saying, we can have the culture's sexual morality and still be faithful to God. And I think that's what Jesus is condemning here. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely, you're definitely going to hit that again several times in the book of Revelation. It's a very prominent theme. And um, see that again in this next letter to uh, Thyatira as well. But before we get there, the ending of the church at Pergamum has one of the most mysterious symbols among the churches. And in the last uh, verse, verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers. I will give some hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who received it. Okay. That's cryptic. What is that referring to? That's you're right. That's very cryptic. The white stone with something secret written on it. This one is difficult. You'll find commentators all over the place on this. But I will say that the the leading ideas all have the same core idea. So first of all, back to the way you started this, Cole. This is an example of will you actually get a white stone with a name written on it? It seems unlikely. The point of this is not that you're going to have a stone in your possession if you succeed. The idea is what does that stone mean? That's what you're going to get. So commentators look at the stone and say it could be anything from an amulet with the divine name of your God on it. That was not uncommon in those times. That doesn't seem very likely. But there are two things where white stones show up in this era that do seem very likely to the idea of if you've overcome, if you've been faithful, you'll be given a white stone. Well, in trials, a white stone was meant an acquittal. So, for example, if you were uh, tried for a crime and you were acquitted, you'd be given a white stone. And this is basically your proof that, hey, the charges have been dismissed. I've been found not guilty. And so you would this white stone was often used to indicate your innocence, your lack of guilt. So you can already see how that idea might play very well here. A second use, and this is probably more common, is that a white stone is a token that gets you into somewhere. Uh, for example, club membership or, so, or think of going to a concert and you get your hand stamped or something. Think of it that way. In those days, they would often have a stone a white stone, and it might have something written on it, and it would mean that you're able to come into this club because you're a member of the club. In fact, we still use a vestige of this today, is we use a phrase called, uh, I tried to join that club, but I got blackballed. Well, the idea of being blackballed is when the members vote on you, this is where this comes from, they would put in a white or a black stone or a ball. And so if somebody put in a black marker, it would be like a veto. No, I don't want that person to be a member of this club. So you might be blackballed. Well, the white stone is just the opposite of that. It says you are able to enter into this. Well, I think you can see that whichever of those it, it's actually talking about, you get the same core idea that Jesus is saying, if you conquer, then I will give you admission 
into the paradise of God, into eternal life. You will be accorded uh, membership, if you will, or the ability to enter in. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I think that's thoughts? one of the. I think that's one of the most fascinating symbols at the end of these letters is the white stone and uh, names play an interesting role in uh, Mm -hmm. the book of revelation. So the fact here that it's a new name, no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus, of course, when he returns has his name written on his robe and on his thigh. And uh, it reminds me of Philippians. No one knows. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's another mysterious name. No one knows. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. It reminds you of Philippians chapter two at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on right. earth. And, and some commentators say, well, what name is that? Is that this mysterious name? We tend to just read over the name of Jesus being Jesus. But right. there are some who have wondered if that's this same kind of mysterious name, the new name that Jesus will come back with that only he knows and, and to whom he chooses to reveal it. And that's a that's a key piece of revelation that's very foreign to us and i think it it's explained really well if you think about it in that in terms of that membership and invitation into something that god is giving out one final question just to wrap us up here what which one of these letters is your favorite and uh, maybe which one do you think is the most difficult of the seven oh that's a good question i've done three so far and we'll finish uh, four in our next session. I think to me, Laodicea is the hardest one to hear because it is such a condemning message to a materialistic church that thinks they are self-sufficient. And I fear that living in uh, the West now that we're all susceptible to that self-reliance materialism of our culture, it, it always stops me short and makes me think you know, instead of just wagging my finger at Laodicea to look in my heart and make sure that I'm uh, that I'm on fire for God and that I'm not lukewarm, if you will, probably the one that uh, that I most sympathize with. We just did Smyrna, and in Smyrna, there's just tremendous persecution, and I love it that Jesus says, "I know your trials, and I know your poverty and the slander." And to me, to for those people undergoing that persecution, and all Christians at all times undergoing persecution or hard times, to hear Jesus say, "I know your troubles and I know your trials," uh, to me has to be some of the sweetest words that you could ever hear. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, give us a little preview of what's coming in these next uh, letters in the next lesson. Well, we're going to finish out the seven letters. And one of the things I've been doing as we go is one of the views of these letters is that they they represent different eras of history of the church. You know, some say there's seven different kinds of churches. Others say, no, it's different eras. And so I'd like to focus a little bit as we get into the Middle Ages of the eras of the church from that point of view, that we kind of look at a little of the history and why do they think these churches represent that era. But I think you're going to see the themes continue, and I think they're very timely, and that is they live in a very godless culture that is pulling very hard at the church to conform or be punished. And I find that the similarity of the churches in Asia in the first century and our modern world to be powerful similarities. Well, it's going to be a really exciting lesson. And, and this is just the beginning of the series. We've still got 
you know, 13 weeks after this or 12 weeks after we have, this. We have a ways to go. This is a, a beautiful vision that John is seeing and just beautiful words of Jesus. I wanted to slow down and spend a little time on Jesus' words. This is the red letter part of the Bible, if you will. But I do think that the excitement level may ramp up a little in chapter four when we start talking rapture and and visions. But uh, the words of Jesus are always precious. And so I think people are really enjoying just meditating on these words. Well, we're getting a lot of good feedback on the series so far and a lot of interest in it. This is just such a great book to study. And so keep checking in on Wednesdays. You can watch online live or afterwards and then keep checking in on Fridays. We'll be answering your questions on Revelation here on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.